Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. I am Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we're bouncing from all things OSS to all things USS. Enterprise, that is, because we have a very special guest joining us this week. Yes, we are joined by Mark Altman, the co-writer of Nobody Does It Better, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of James Bond. He is a friend of the show. He's written many more books, including things on John Wick, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, Star Trek, which is why I made the uh, USS Enterprise pun just there. But I think uh, there's a lot to discuss, a lot about James Bond, a lot about what's going on with James Bond now to get into. So without further ado, over to the interview. Cam, roll it. And joining us now on the show, a man of many talents, a director, a producer, a podcaster on the hit show Inglorious Trexperts, and most importantly, to today's discussion. He is the co-writer of the books like The 50-Year Mission and Nobody Does It Better, the complete uncensored, unauthorized oral history of James Bond. Despite hailing from New York, he's keeping the British end up. It's Mr. <laughs> Mark A. Altman. Hi. Hello there, sir. Hello. I got good news. I'm not going to do any singing. Mm. You know, like uh, I'm not going to start doing <laughs> British accents like Robert Davi. I'm just going to answer your questions. You know, I mean, you know, I'm not going to start doing monologues or anything like that. Talk about my iguana. I love that story. I wish they had left that in the movie, him talking to his iguana, because it would have made Sanchez a little like weirder, like a little more like a yeah. traditional Bond villain. If he had like been talking to his iguana, it's kind of like the monkey in the original Dr. No plot. Mm -hmm. Remember Dr. No was a monkey in the, in it, that was the uh, Wolf Mankiewicz's idea. Like, I, I just think it would have actually been pretty funny. Like it could have been cool. And like, this guy's really like mental, right. Talking to the iguana. But, uh, and it probably would have been a better actor than Talisa Soto, but um, it was uh it was a very interesting interview you guys did with Davi. I thought that was a good one. That would have been a great idea, actually, if he was, you know, because when you watch the movie, it's kind of like a streamlined 80s action villain for so much of the movie. Mm -hmm. If you yes. played it that way for like two thirds of the runtime and then at a certain point had him turn and acknowledge the iguana as having spoken to him, it would have blown <laughs> the audience's minds. Well, I know there are people that like love, love, love License to Kill. Now, they, I don't know if they were alive in 89, but when I saw it, uh, you know, I was so disappointed because you got to remember that script was a victim of the writer's strike. Um, and, you know, it, it's another Michael Wilson special and Maybaum didn't have a ton to do with it. And it's just a much better concept than it is a movie. And, you know, some of the casting is just so dreadful and, um, you know, some really flat performances. And it's sad because at the time, most people don't remember, there was a really popular show called Wise Guy, mm -hmm. you know, where basically um, uh, Ken Wall goes undercover uh, and, you know, into criminal organizations. And in the first arc, he he goes undercover with uh, this mafia guy, Sonny Steelgrave, and they become like brothers, like literally they're like brothers. At the end, he had basically has to turn on him, say, you know, I'm with the OCB and 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 arrest him and turn him in. And um, and, you know, that's one of the reasons they got Alphonse Ruggiero to do the original version, of you know, to, to write the original version of the script. And like to me, Wise Guy was such a high bar that License to Kill was trying to do the same thing and didn't do it as well. So I get people that seen it later in life that just say, no, then why do people hate this movie? And to me, it was just like this cheap movie that was shot in Mexico that doesn't look good, that was very 80s, 
and you know you could feel like the influence of lethal weapon and die hard on it but it's not as good as either of those movies and and um but you know i i get you know i there are great things in it. So I don't know why I'm going off on this license to kill team. I mean, like Robert Davi is one of the great things in the movie. Like he's very good at it and he took it very seriously. And I'm amazed because we've all interviewed people like 30 years after 40 years after the movie comes out. And he's like quoting characters. He remembers the movie better than anybody. Like I've seen that movie, even a bad bond movie. I've seen like, you know, a hundred times. Right. And he remembers it like, He's like, oh, and then this Anthony Zerbis character, Milton Crest did this and that, and it's like so funny to hear him talk about it, and and uh, like like he made it yesterday, you know, or or like just it means so much to him that movie it was it, great stories, good job, guys. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you, and and that's that's really what you want from an interview because uh, we've had many as well that we've had to do some magical editing on where people have no idea they've worked on certain films with certain actors, and you have to just kind of go, oh. Do you remember that Rat Pack person you worked with? No. Oh, yeah. Well, that was the point of this interview, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Totally. I, 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 you know, that's the great thing about yeah, obviously doing doing the books, and I try on the podcast to to avoid anyone who I think is a stiff, and we very rarely got stuck with somebody who's like just awful, but it, it happens occasionally, as you 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 all know, and it's it's painful, and um, when when that happens, because it's just like. Do you remember anything? Why did you want to do this? Did you, I mean, some of these people like literally haven't watched the movie since it came out or maybe never even saw it then. And they have vague recollections of having even done it. I mean, I've talked to people about certain movies in their oeuvre and like, they don't even remember having made a movie called that. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very interesting, but I, I like that. Uh, you know, because I didn't re-interview Davi for the book because my feeling was I had interviewed him at length uh, when the movie contemporaneous, when the movie came out for cine fantastic, when I did the license, to kill cover. And I'm like, mm-hmm. kind of like, is he going to say anything new that he didn't say back then? He probably would have actually, he probably would have been more candid, mm-hmm. but at that point we had done so many interviews. I'm just like anyone I had interviewed in the past where they'd only done one bond movie. Like there was no need to go back to them. So I just went to my, it was amazing that I had my original transcripts from, way back then probably on floppy disk but over the years there's certain no i had the tape that was it i had cassette tapes of all those interviews so um and i had to retranscribe them but it was it was great because at least i was able to use stuff that i didn't use in the magazine articles at the time anyway i got ahead of myself but oh, i was just no. i really compliment to you guys also one of the reasons i i, I want to talk to you I, I don't think we mentioned this is that we all met uh for the first time in person at the las vegas uh a star trek convention yeah did you guys get covid no i did you did okay so i'll add you to the list i did not but virtually everyone i know did i got extremely sick i didn't get covid but i think it was just because it was a hellhole the rio and you know just all the um that they probably haven't cleaned the filters and the hvac systems in about 20 years and everyone was it sick has and- hvac systems you know, the, the, the air conditioning system. Yeah. It was, no, I'm just it was, surprised it has any. Yeah, right. Exactly. And I mean, the elevators didn't work. So you had like one elevator. So everybody was like squeezing in and it was just a miserable, miserable. The convention was great, but the, it was a miserable hotel. And um, and everyone like I know so many people who got either COVID or got sick after that convention. It was it was a perfect storm of awful, awfulness. 
Well, I might have been lucky in that I got COVID in late June. And so perhaps the antibodies were strong enough that I sailed right through Vegas. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's yeah. good. That's good. And yeah, I mean, there were a lot of, a lot, you know, a lot of people there too, but that was fun. It was good meeting you guys. And of course, anybody, you know, who does a spy show, who's like, oh, well, our favorite espionage movie is Notorious. Got to come on their show mm. because they deserve respect. <laughs> a man after my own heart, Mr. Mark A. Ortman. I love it. Um, well, as you said, let's get into it. We want to talk about the book, but I want to get us there and hear your story that brought you to James Bond and spy movie. So tracking back, when did that sort of love of Bond start for you? Well, I I mean, I'm dating myself, but my kids took me when I, my kids, my parents took me <laughs> when I was very young, when I was very young to see the man with the golden gun. You know, and even though in retrospect, The Man with the Golden Gun is not a particularly good Bond movie at the time for whatever I was, six or seven years old, it was like, oh, my God, this is the coolest thing ever. Now, I don't know if I had been watching Bond movies yet. I don't think so. So I I, I would religiously here in the States on Sunday nights, it was the ABC Sunday night movie. And like once a month or every couple of months, they run Bond movies. And so. I just watched them voraciously and just fell in love with Bond. I mean, people think I'm like, you know, oh, this huge Star Trek fan, which I am. Like, Bond was like my thing, was more than Star Trek. I was more in love with Bond than Star Trek. And um, I just, um, I just, it was just this amazing thing. And, and you know, for a long time until the the, uh, the movies came out on VHS, I didn't even know there was a teaser to Goldfinger. Like, they used to cut it on ABC with the whole scene where he goes into the country and says it's positively shocking and um you know blows up the 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 poppy farm and all that stuff and the dock on his head like it just started with the, the Robert Brown John credits and then the movie proper like they would cut the teasers because they needed to fit a 2 hour time slot and so like i didn't until i even saw them like in the 80s they came out on VHS or or you know and i i would see the whole movie i'm like oh my god there's there's more movie to this and um, at one point, they came out on videotape with Pink Panther cartoons at the beginning, which was like kind of yeah. ridiculous. And uh, and uh, but but that was when I got them on on video. And um, but, you know, I, I look after I saw Man with the Golden Gun, I've seen obviously every Bond in a theater. Um, you know, I, I, I've said this before. I think in 77. In, in retrospect, I think I was more excited about Spy Love Me than Star Wars. I mean, I know I, I think I saw Spy Love Me more times in the theater than mm. I saw Star Wars. Um, and, you know, I just love, you know, I love Spy Love Me. And, uh, you know, of course, then I saw Moonraker in a theater and then, uh, you know, saw Free Your Eyes Only and Octopussy Never Say Never Again and A View to Kill and onwards. And, you know, I could do this. All, you know, we could just do the list, but I'm not going to. But, you know, so, so everything. And in fact, you showed me before we started a book that I had written back in the nineties. And I remember I was on book tour and it was the weekend that Goldeneye, the week Goldeneye came out. So okay. I literally played hooky for my own book tour. I was in San Francisco at that point, because I'd been New York, Chicago, Portland, a whole bunch of cities. This is back when they flew authors around and they put you in like the Ritz Carlton and it was, it took really good care of you. That doesn't happen anymore, but they flew, you know, fly you around and put you up. So I've been on the book tour for like 14 days going to all these different, 
um, cities to promote the book. So I get to San Francisco and Goldeneye opens. So I literally played hooky for my own book tour to go to see Goldeneye opening day because I was like, I'm not missing Goldeneye. And I saw it in this great theater. I think I forget what it was at the Castro or something in uh, in San Francisco. And I remember my publicist like, oh, you're late. Where were you? I'm like, I went to go see a new Bond movie. And because, of course, at that point, it wasn't just a Bond movie. We'd been waiting what seemed like forever for it to come out. Um, and then it, it it finally did. Of course, that's when we thought, oh, that we'll never have to wait this long for a Bond movie again. <laughs> but go back to doing them every two years. Yeah. And obviously, was I wrong? <laughs> was there ever a period where your Bond fandom like faltered or fell off for a little bit? I know some people talk about, say, like late Brosnans that kind of checked out and then came back for Craig. Was there anything like that? No, you know, I I think I always kind of felt like, even when I saw one I didn't like that. Well, the next one will be better. That's what I loved about every two years because they could try things. And, you know, if a view to a kill comes out and you're like, Ugh, and, uh, you <laughs> That's know, my you, entry point. <laughs> and I know so many people that was their entry, their first bond at theater. And they have a lot of, uh, you know, they really it's beloved to them. And I, I get that. Um, although I have to say my first was golden gun and I don't think that's a great movie. So, but, yeah. but, um, I don't think it ever waned. It definitely ebbs and flows where like I would watch Bond movies all the time. Like if I was just sitting around, I'd throw on Bond movies. And then there are times where it's like, I didn't, re you know, I don't really, you know, watch them as often, you know. Um, mm. uh, but I certainly when those, the, the the DVD set came out with the John Cork featurettes and and the, um, and all the deleted scenes. I mean, those, those are some of the, they don't get credit for being some of the best dvd special features uh best sets ever produced i mean those that run of dr no through i think it was a view to a kill is just or maybe it went past that maybe i but it was it was phenomenal I think it went to die another day i think it went up okay oh yeah hours. yeah okay yeah. it was phenomenal yeah right it went to world is not enough those documentaries and the special features and of course they'd you know, it was a successor to Laserdisc because there were these amazing, mm -hmm. it was Goldfinger and Thunderball on Laserdisc that were these special editions that were phenomenal where they dug up like all these featurettes and all these deleted scenes. And like that's, that the, those periods to me were so exciting because it was all the stuff I'd never seen, even these old ABC like TV shows about it. But I mean, uh, you know, as a kid, you know, I used to buy all the, the albums, which were the, and every year, you know, in time a new Bond came out, they come out with the same album, but with the new, the new song on the album. And I'm thinking at some point they're going to run out of albums, you know, <laughs> space on the albums for all these songs, you know. And um, uh, but I used to, you know, get those and I listen to soundtracks all the time. And um, uh, I just, uh, you know, and I, I remember getting on VHS. This, this is something I, I wore. It was just a VHS of the trailers to all the Bond movies. This was they came out in the early 80s. And I used to, from like Good Times Video, right? Because they didn't license it. I'm sure it was, you know, just public domain. And I just loved that. I would watch that all the time. I could watch that, you know, every day. And it was just, uh, but I love watching Bond trailers. And, uh, but yeah, I, there are times, I guess, where my interest waned. Um, you know, I think during that period between License to Kill and Goldeneye, like everyone, I'm like, you know, is this thing ever coming back? Are they going to resolve this? I sure hope so. And, um, you know, six years between Bond movies, you know, is kind of ridiculous. The whole period between 
Spectre and Skyfall. And now the, I mean, I just never, this is a pet peeve of mine that they know that Bond is a franchise and they know they're going to do more Bond movies. Why do they develop one script at a time? Why they don't try and develop multiple scripts? They say, oh, it's too much work. It's too hard. You know, it's like, and see what works. It's not that that expensive to develop a script. It's a couple hundred thousand dollars for a good writer or great writer. It's more than that. But, you know, it, there's no excuse other than the fact there's an apathy about actually doing it. I think they're paralyzed because the expectation is at, once you have movies like um, Skyfall that are nominated for Oscars and critics are saying, oh, my God, this movie is, you know, top 10 of the year. Suddenly they they stop becoming programmers like they used to do every two years mm-hmm. and become, you know, something where they're paralyzed about like, you know, making just they don't want to make something and they spend so much on them that they have to be billion dollar performers rather than just making a good movie that, you know, the, consistently. And I don't like that the bond has become something where it's so rarefied that everyone has to every every movie has to be a home run because even movies I don't like, like License to Kill and Man with the Golden Gun, I watch, you know, and, and there are things about them I love. Like I, I'm sitting here bagging on License to Kill, but I could tell you 10 scenes I love in it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Man with the Golden Gun, I don't think is a good movie. I could tell, I, even View to a Kill, which I don't particularly like, there are just probably 10 or eight scenes in it that I love. So, you know, I'll watch any Bond movie. So now when it becomes like, you know, that they, they make, they take it so seriously developing these movies. And it's like, and then, you know, they spend all this time to make a Bond movie. And then we're so hard on them because we've been waiting six years. Like, would Spectre have been as bad if it had been, we'd been waiting two years for it? I think we would have been more charitable. You know, I mean, the same thing with Skyfall. It's just, you know, when you, the, the anticipation grows and grows and grows, and then there's no way to satisfy the audience. I, I can't see me, myself ever being nice about Spectre. You, you try as you might. You can put as much alcohol down my neck as you could. Uh, I, I will never get on board with the vibe of that film. I, I, I really don't like the end, the last... The last act. Basically. The last it's act just, of it. Yeah. But there are things about it that I like. I like the car chase in Italy. I like I like her. Uh, uh, um, I like... Um, and now I'm trying to remember it. Uh, you know, I, I obviously the beautiful cinematography I love. Um, the meeting scene is great. The meeting scene is great. Yeah, the meeting yeah. scene is great. Um, it's not as great as the meeting scene in Quantum. Well, but it's a great. But yeah. what is? Um, it's it's. Uh, but there are things in Spectre I like, and it's a, it's it's grown on me slightly. I, I would never argue that it's a good movie, but. Um, the first, I, I I think it really goes off the rails in the third act, but, um, and it's trying to be Mission Impossible all of a sudden, which is bizarre. But um, yeah. but but I don't ha- I don't hate it the way I, I hate to say it the way I hate Skyfall. <laughs> Whoa, and that's Skyfall. What am I talking about? The way I hate uh, uh, No Time to Die. I don't hate Skyfall. I, I like Skyfall quite a bit. I, I that's no- a spicy take right there. Yeah, yeah I was like, holy uh... smokes, bombshell. <laughs> yeah. So no, 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 no. Sorry, I. I I, but no time to die. I just I, I I came out of that. I don't think I've been that upset since I saw Generations. Whoa! <laughs> no. I, I I get the Generations vibe, so I understand that. But what I'm hearing from you, Mark, is you're somewhat of a Bond fan. A little bit. 
Yeah, a little just bit. a smidge, just a smidge. Yeah, and yeah, you mentioned some of the the books that you'd done in in sort of the early nineties, and I stumbled upon like one of your earliest books, like working on a, a Twin Peaks making of book, which is crazy. That's the first book I ever did. I can't believe you found it's that crazy. Yeah, I I love Twin. I Peaks. I did that right after I graduated from college. So do I. Wow. I great show. I was writing for Cinefantastic, and my friend Ed Gross, who I mm-hmm. write the the oral histories with, um, he was writing for this company called Pioneer Books, and they did these schlocky kind of pop culture cash-in books. And uh, I, I was trying to do. I I was I pitched Fred Clark, um, and a cover story on Twin Peaks for Cinefantastic, and at the last second he decided not to do it. And I couldn't believe, like, why? So um, Ed said, you should pitch it to the Pioneer Books as a book. And uh, and I did. Um, oh, my God. And I I pitched it to them. And uh, they said, yeah, that'd be great. And that was my first. It was exciting. I, I think I got paid, like, next to nothing for it. But it came out right in the middle of the storm of the craziness of Twin Peaks when it was at its height. It sold like crazy. And um, I did a bunch of signings in New York and it's riddled with typos and it's so amateurish, but it's actually a really good book. It's, it's probably one of the better books written about Twin Peaks and especially because it was written concurrently with the show. Um, and people have said to me over the years, oh, would you ever revise it? I'm like, no, why? What's the audience for this? And, you know, I, I you know, the publisher is long dead. So, I mean, I, I think I, the rights have reverted to me anyway, but I, I can't imagine ever doing anything with it. But it was very exciting. I mean, look, to, I was probably 22 or three and to have my first book published and um, getting a lot of attention for it. And that that was nice. And I, like I said, I, I, I love Twin Peaks. And um, one of the great things was my first trip to Los Angeles. Um I actually got to go to the sets. This was like the late in the second oh. season. And, um, you know, obviously it's before camera phones because I would have taken all these pictures. So I only had one of these stupid Kodak Instamatics. I don't know if I ever got those mm-hmm. photos developed, but, um, I, you know, it was like a Windermere's cabin, the double R diner. And it was just like for somebody who just got out of college, who hadn't been on a lot of movie sets um, to be on the set of Twin Peaks. And this was right. That was same trip I had was one of my second visits to I think next generation. Um it was really exciting um to uh to see um and be on the Twin Peaks. They were filming on location that day. So nobody was around. So I really got to walk around and experience all the sets and the whole experience. It was really mind blowing. And uh most of the people were really super cooperative. But not everybody, because it was a huge phenomenon at the time. There were a lot of people who didn't want to talk. And um, but but I did talk to a ton of people. And that was um, really fun. I, I, I never cease to be amazed by how often people bring that book up because, you know, it's nothing that's in my bio. It's nothing I really talk about. But I constantly have people coming to me saying, oh, man, I have your Twin Peaks book or you wrote that Twin Peaks book or it's 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 actually, you know, very flattering. Well, I'm curious, you know, let's back up a little bit because you're clearly, you know, a fan of James Bond, Star Trek, Twin Peaks, many things. But like you're writing for Cinema uh, Fantastique, you have your first Twin Peaks book. But like how does sort of your fandom lead into becoming a writer on these pop culture events? Well, in college, well, as a kid, even younger than that, I had done a fanzine 
um, and covered a lot of stuff. So even as early as, I mean, I was like a young teenager going to press screenings because I had like this little mimeograph fanzine. So I, I, I remember my first press screening ever was 1982's Tron. The next year, I, I remember going to war games. I remember cutting class to go to war games. Um, and so in college, I was writing for a school newspaper and I was the arts editor and then I became the editor in chief. So when, when I, and it was doing a little writing on the side for Boston Globe. And one of my professors wrote for Cinefantastic and he suggested to me, he said, oh, you want me to introduce you to the editor? I think he would, you know, dig you. And so I, I talked to Fred Clark and he started giving me the Star Trek beat. So I did a bunch of Star Trek articles for him, which he loved and sales went way up. So he kept giving me more to write and he paid me so little. We started doing these double issues because I would write these really long articles because I get paid more because I got paid by the word. So he incentivized me to write more. And um, and then he asked, you know, License to Kill is coming out. Do you want to do Bond? I'm like, fuck, yeah, I want to do Bond. <laughs> and um, so I ended up doing the cover story on License to Kill which was great because I had a wonderful conversation with Michael Wilson, which was really exciting. I mean, I talked to everybody except Timothy. Timothy wouldn't do a phone interview, but he he agreed to answer questions in writing, which I from you know, which has always colored my opinion about him, you know, being a pretentious ass. But um, but uh, so I, I remember doing that, and um, uh, it, it was it was great because I I did this wonderful interview with Richard Maybaum, which was such a thrill and unfortunately it was one of those articles where i tried to convince him to do double issue and let's like really do bond and he didn't so a lot of stuff got cut or cut down and i didn't get to do as much as i wanted but i had these really long interviews and then because at the time i mean that's when i did this phenomenal tom mankowitz interview that i use a lot of in the book that never got used in cinefantastic um and it was funny because i i was already thinking about doing a follow-up and you know, Fred was like, yeah, it'd be cool. Let's do, you know, a bond issue. And I'll never forget. This is so embarrassing. Um, so Guy Hamilton calls me because I had written to him about doing an interview. And, you know, it's back in the day of answering machines. So um, I hear the answering machine go off because he's calling from London. I'm in California. It's like five, six in the morning. Go, Hello, Mark. It's Guy Hamilton here. And um, I didn't pick up because I'm like, I was so tired. I'm like, I'm not picking up. And I like, I literally didn't pick up for Guy Hamilton. And then <laughs> I couldn't get a hold of him. And then he died. And it was like, oh, to this day, oh. I'm like, why the hell didn't you pick up for Guy Hamilton? You freaking idiot. So um, that was really annoying because I love funeral in Berlin also. Right. And, and, and so I would have loved, loved, loved to have talked to him. And so I never got to talk to him and uh, it, it bums me out. <laughs> <laughs> but I still have the answering machine message. Still, <laughs> yeah, no, I, maybe I don't oh. know. <laughs> but uh, in, in, in your head, it's there. You heard it that yeah, exists. There. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, I mean, I'll never forget. It's, it's like I'm like I'm like stirred out of slumber. I hear this, you know, Guy Hamilton. I'm like, oh, it's Guy Hamilton. Oh, well, that's cool. I have to call him back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I may have to just leave you a voicemail as, as like a British voice just to haunt you from time to yeah, time. Yeah, right. I'll, yeah, yeah. Be, I'll just pretend to be Guy Hamilton. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Mark, I'm calling about that interview. <laughs> but yeah, it's always there's always a few that, that get away. We've had a couple as well that uh, just just fall through your fingers at the last minute. But uh, but that you did actually cue me up for a follow up question though because you mentioned Ebergrosh, your writing partner on on the books we're talking about today and even the books we mentioned earlier as well. 
where did you meet Edward? Where did that sort of collaborative relationship sort of stem from? Well, that's interesting too, because I think it was as early as, I don't know if it was high school or college, but I, he had read, it must've been college, but I, I he had read some stuff uh, of mine, I think Cinefantastic, but also some stuff I'd written for Starlog. And he mm-hmm. was starting to do um, these books and magazines, and he wanted to use some interviews I had done for something he was doing. So he called me up out of the blue and I was talking, I said, Oh, I'm a big fan of your writing, which I was. And, um, because he had been doing this longer than me and we hit it off. And then when Star Trek was at the height of its popularity, we did a bunch of things together and, um, we stayed, we stayed friends and, um, uh, you know, we, we, for, you know, and then I kind of lost touch with him for a while. I lost touch, but didn't talk to him. And when we we're getting close to the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, um, he's like, oh, you know, maybe this would be a good time to revisit Star Trek, you know, and do a book. And by then I'm doing like TV and movies and things. And I'm just like, ah, I don't really have anything left to say about Star Trek. And I really don't think it would be that interesting. And told him a whole bunch of reasons why I didn't want to do a book on Star Trek. And then I read this book um, called I Want My MTV, which was an oral history of MTV. And it was really, it was funny and it was informative and it was like kitchen. It was really cool. And so I call him up and I said, look, I'm not saying I want to do this book, but I said, maybe if we did the Star Trek book as an oral history, which no one's ever done, um, that could be interesting. But, you know, I'm not saying I'm going to do it, but I'll think about it. But talk to our agent and see what she thinks she can get for it. And at that time, I'm thinking she's not going to be able to sell it or it's not going to be enough money or whatever. So like 24 hours later, my, the agent calls and it's like she sold it for a bunch of money. And I'm like, oh, shit, I'm stuck doing this book. <laughs> but uh, but um, I was like. I have to say it was a great experience, like I'm so glad I did it. I'm so first of all, I really reconnected Ed and I. We had so much fun writing it because we split up the interviews and like he would do an interview and get these incredible stories. And start telling me some of the stuff they said. Then I call him back with somebody else I interviewed and start telling him all this great stuff I got. And, you know, it would be, it got to the, we'd start, he'd go like, stop competing with me, Decker. And, you know, we'd start trading, <laughs> you know, uh, quotes. And, and it just like everything on that book went well, other than the fact we were the angels of death, where, uh, you know, it seemed like right after we interviewed somebody, they would die or right before we were, you know, we would die. It happened on the Bond book too. I mean, it's like we were, just connecting with Lewis Gilbert and scheduling an interview and he died and other, it's just like, there's a problem with doing these 50, 60 year old franchises, as you guys know. And, um, but so Ed and I did the Star Trek books and the Star Trek books were so freaking successful that they wanted more stuff. So that's when we made a deal for Buffy and Battlestar Galactica. And then, you know, after that, they said, you know, what would you want to do next? And like, for me, there was only one thing that I really wanted to do, which was Bond. And they jumped at that and we did the Bond book. And then after that, they came to us with Star Wars. I didn't really want to do that, but I did it and it was fine. And then the same thing with the John Wick book. They came to us and said, would you want to do John Wick? And I said, oh, that's really interesting. Um, I would be interested, but I want to expand it to be broader than just John Wick. I want to cover Gun Fu and and the, the new age of action because I don't think John Wick's been around long enough. that. It, it, mm-hmm. And at the time, I didn't know a lot of the stories about John Wick. So I didn't know how interesting it was little I didn't know how interesting 
the story was, particularly with the first one of getting it made and how it became a sort of the success that it became, you know, and how no one wanted to finance it. And no one wanted to distribute it. And, you know, ultimately it's, it's like this wonderful story of success for a bunch of people who deserve success. And, um, so I'm very proud of that one. That was the last one we did. They they um they shouldn't have killed his dog, which I think turned out great. And it's not a thousand pages like some of these other ones. Um, but it was a really great run of books. And you know when you know I, there's just not a lot now left to write about. I've written about Star Trek. I've written about Bond. I've done Star Wars. I've done Galactica. You know, and um, you know everybody keeps asking us. Well, there's a lot more Star Trek to write about. You know, I'm not that interested in writing about the new shows, but, um, you know, the 60th anniversary is coming up. So it's kind of like Sean Connery, never say never again. I I, I will see. I, I right now there are no plans, but it could I could be convinced, perhaps Ed wants to do it. I had a question about actually your format, these oral histories. Is it like cons- like considerably more difficult to cover newer material versus older franchises? Like it feels like when you do, say, like the older Star Trek shows or a lot of the older Bond films, people are much more candid, whereas people seem more guarded when they're talking about, say, the Daniel Craig era. Yeah, that's a good point. Look, since since you're spy hearts, let's use the Bond book as an example. Yeah. Um. Yes, certainly. You know, and 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 Bond was particularly challenging because you have it controlled by a very insular small group of protective private people in Eon, right? They don't want anybody doing anything they don't control. So Mm -hmm. doing the old stuff was easy. Do it as you get into more recent, like this, this blew my mind. Um, I remember with Michael Apted, uh, I think I had reached out to him about talking about world is not enough. He says, Oh, I have to check with, you know, Michael and Barbara. And I'm like, you made that movie 15 years ago. Why do you have to fucking check with anybody? Do you want to talk or not? And he was like, well, I do want to talk about it, but I got to talk, check with them to make sure it's okay. You know? And it was like, really? I mean, which was crazy. So we were dealing with that kind of stuff. I mean, you can imagine Star Wars, it was even more difficult. Um, so, and I felt, you know, and it's a good point you raised because even with Star Trek, I think <laughs> the Star Trek books are amazing through the enterprise chapter and then the stuff on the bad robot movies is fine mm. but it's not the best part of the book and that's because it's the most recent because yes and and there is that sense that when, as you get in the more recent movies nobody wants to burn any bridges right so yeah. people even the people you talk to are less candid i mean occasionally you get somebody like alexander witt who just doesn't give a shit and he just says great stuff but you know for most of the people either they didn't want to talk or if they did they were really boring you know, and that was certainly the case with the bad robot Star Treks, where we did not have the kind of candid, in-depth coverage of those movies the way we did everything else. Which has to be a little frustrating because when you look at, say, like, you know, the Bond universe, there was so much tumult involving Spectre and No Time to Die that those movies are just screaming out for kind of like the definitive what actually happened step one to a hundred that resulted in those yes, movies. Totally. But I would imagine it's probably going to be like, what do you think, like 20 years, 30 years before you finally hear those stories? I don't think the stories will come out until Michael and Barbara are no longer involved. And even then, I think I think there's a lot of love for them, even for, with people who fought like cats and dogs with them, where I don't think they want to say anything bad. It was like same thing with Cubby. 
you know, people loved Cubby so much that you very rarely see anybody say anything negative about Cubby. You know, and Cubby was a tough, you know, tough guy. I'm the, you know, tough guy. You know, you have to be to be a success in the business the way he was. And he was tough, but no, I've never heard anybody say anything bad about him because, you know, and, and they, because of the way he treated people, which was amazing. I mean, he, he is an example for a lot of people. And it's interesting because it's only recently, and I hadn't heard this, I'm sure you guys have, that I guess, you know, Back in in the early days of Hollywood, you know, Cubby was involved in like a murder, um, and with uh, you know the, the, these two other people, and he sort of took the heat, and that's how he got his AD job, his first day job ADing for Columbia, because it was a you know th- a thank you from Harry Cohn for sort of taking the heat for the for for this manslaughter charge that um, one of their actors and I forget who it was was actually responsible for in this bar where they killed this you know uh, and 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 and. Um, you know, but you don't hear that because people love Cubby and they never talk about this stuff. And I think it's the same thing with Barbara and Michael. Uh, you know, look, I only interviewed Michael once, and yet I found him super charming, and um, and I just super interesting. I love that it's a family business too. You know, mm-hmm. that it was just passed down. And for a long time, I thought that was a good thing for the Bonds. You know, that they were trying to. Um, honor their father's legacy, and it was still Cubby Broccoli's Eon Productions. Now, I think the more they get away from Cubby's philosophy, the more the movies have hurt, been hurt as a result of this sudden desire to be Oscar bait, you know, um, and not trusting, you know, not not letting Bond be Bond, um, and trying to make it into something it's not. Um, but yes, it, it is frustrating that you have that where people are either not honest or not willing to speak where you could really, because yes, I mean, I think the best stuff I read about Spectre was in a book about the Sony hack where they're covering the Sony hack and, and talking about everything. That's the most in-depth conversation I've seen about the problems with Spectre. Um, And it was really funny. uh, The thing about Spectre, I, I was a co-executive producer on a show called H and X, which was a spy show for TNT. Uh, about a secret agent that worked for the vice president and we did an episode we did an episode that came out right around specter and just by complete accident it's basically the same exact plot there's the same scene same scene on a train every i remember sitting in the theater when we're in the middle of editing that episode and specter came out i'm like holy mackerel this is the same plot (laughs) and 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 i literally had known very little nothing about specter at the time and i was just like I can't believe this is the same plot as Spectre. And in retrospect, I think our episode of Agent X was probably a little better than Spectre. <laughs> but, um, but I was so looking forward to Spectre because, of course, we all were because it was like, oh, my God, finally, Blofeld and Spectre are back. And it's like, what an amazing opportunity. And then they make him his brother and all this other nonsense. Oh, God. Could you imagine... Donald Pleasance looking over to Sean Connery and saying, I, I'm your brother. I, 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 know. I built this volcano to get revenge against you because you were my dad. Our dad liked you better than me. It's like, oh, God, awful. Once uh, once Blofeld lost his socks, they lost the plot. That was just too far at that point. When he's talking about meteorites for some reason, it's oh. all just like, uh, I, I don't know why we're here anymore. I, I cannot, I cannot stand spec. <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to start weighing into that film, but you did bring up an interesting point about, um, 
you mentioned Michael Apted and him sort of saying he has to check with the powers that be. One of my questions was the powers that be, because on the book, there's a very important word in the title, unauthorized. Yes. Did you ever get any sort of discussion from Eon or Sony at that point saying, hey, we don't want you talking about this thing? Or did they ever push back against you? Or were you able to fly under the radar? No, I think they were just people that they probably told not to talk to us because at the end of the day, I mean, this thing is vetted by the lawyers 900 ways till Sunday. So, mm. I mean, you know, we know what we can and can't do. Um, and, you know, but it, but the one thing they can do is is not, you know, tell people not to talk. And I'm sure there were people that we sent requests to that. And, and probably, uh, you know, it's a couple of years. I don't remember, but that probably did not get back to us or passed because of, um, you know, and then you have the people like Jaffa Koda who are more than happy to talk for hours and just, you know, half that interview I couldn't use, but he's just talking about, they can bring back Kananga. They can bring back. I've talked <laughs> to Barbara Broccoli about this. They need to bring Kananga back. You don't see him die. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He explodes <laughs> on camera. Yeah, that could have been somebody else. That could have been, a, it's a false flag. Kananga's still alive. He's too smart to let that happen to him. They should bring him back. They're peeling him off the ceiling. What are you talking about, <laughs> Yafet? Jeez. I mean, it was the most bizarre interview. The most bizarre interview with Yafet. I mean, I loved him, but it's like, and he's so funny. He's like, you know, I'm such a pioneer. And it's like fine for other people to say this about you, but he's saying it about himself. I was such a pioneer. I was the first black man in space. I was the first black detective. I was the first, you know, um, he goes, I was the first black Bond villain. I was like, okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, I... I he was great. I mean, I loved it, but it was a hoot. And he was in the Philippines. And, you know, you just never know what you're going to get with these people. I mean, that's mm. that's the that's the fun of doing these books, because with Star Trek and with Bond, it was all these people I'd never talked to before in my, you know, or mostly um, some I had. But because uh, I tried not to repeat people who had nothing new to add. You know, in fact, the people that weren't contemporaneous, I figured they remember less than they did at the time. So why am I going to go back to somebody I already interviewed, you know, at the time, unless they've continued to be involved with the franchise in some capacity? And uh, but he 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 was great. I was really happy to get Jane Seymour, which was great because at the time I was proofing the uh, uh, galleys on the Galactica book. And there was no way she would ever talk about Galactica because sure. she hates it. So at the end of the Bond interview, I slipped in a Galactica question. She took a question. She almost didn't answer. Why do you want to talk about that? That was terrible. And I was like, oh, just I'm curious. And she, so she answers the question. So he's able to take Jane Seymour's quote about Galactica and get it into the Galactica book before it went to press. So I was very proud of that. But she was great, too. She was she was another one. Uh, I love the live and let die chapter. Um, but, you know, obviously, and I've said this before, the biggest coup for me personally was getting Woody Allen mm. to talk about uh, Casino Royale 68. That was, I mean, first of all, he barely does interviews, you know, and obviously he does interviews for his own movies. And I remember talking to the publicist. And I said, look, I'm sure he doesn't want to do this. This is what we call a Hail Mary. But I would love to talk to Woody Allen about this. He's never really talked about it in depth. Um, and I know he hated doing the movie, but, uh, you know, and and they, and to my shock, they said yes. And I talked to him for about an hour and a half about Casino Royale. And, you know, when I sent him the book after it came out, he wrote me the loveliest letter about it, um, which I could not believe. So um, 
it, it was so great. And I'm very proud of that chapter, the Honor Majesty Secret Service chapter, because we cover um, Casino Royale 68. And then we also talk about the in like Flint movies. And mm-hmm. obviously I never interviewed James Coburn, but um, this is, I mean, this is like why it's like being a detective. Um, my sound mixer, my first movie uh, uh, was the son of uh, James Coburn. And so I reached out to him uh, and I said, I'm doing this thing and I'd love to have the Flint movies and presence analyst included in some fashion. Not a lot of, not going to spend a lot of time on it. I said, do you have any like interviews or transcripts or um, things? And he said, well, my wife just finished a book about him and has a bunch of interviews. You're welcome to use whatever you want um, in the, in the, in the book. So Robin gave me all these great quotes um, from James Coburn that I was able to use. So I was so excited to be able to, you know, just at least acknowledge some of the, because that's what you can do in an unauthorized book, right? Mm. All these book, you know, an authorized book, it's going to be the official story, which we know bears little resemblance to the truth. And B, you're not going to cover anything outside of the Bond movies. You're not going to talk about Never Send Never Again, right? So um, I was able to, you know, have, Casino Royale 68 and the Flint movies and Presence Analyst and 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 Never Say Never Again and all that stuff, which is, you know, one of the very liberating things about doing unauthorized books. I mean, particularly the Star Trek book, but obviously some of the some of the stuff in there, it's like I, I would never want to do an authorized Star Trek book because it's bullshit. That stuff is the stories, you know, are bullshit in those. You know, it goes they go through it, they, they and they and they they tell, you know, a fairy tale about about this stuff. I mean, I think that's why it became a bestseller. And I think that's why people love the book so much because it's so honest. And they're like, oh my God, this stuff really happened. This is crazy. We had no idea, you know, because very few. And then, you know, the other unauthorized books about Star Trek, like Herb Solo, they're just hatchet jobs because they want to take credit for stuff, you know, because, oh, Gene Ron, you know, Gene Ronberry was the credit hog. So I'm going to take credit now that he's dead. You know, so those are self-serving, you know, our book, and I said, the great thing I love about oral histories, it's like Rashomon. Everybody has different stories. And in a regular book, you kind of have to say whose story is right, but you don't really know. So we can have three different people tell the same story. And then you can decide who's telling the truth mm-hmm. or is there no truth? Is there no objective truth? And and that's what's really fun. But that's also the challenge. People think, oh, you're doing oral history. Is it just a bunch of interviews that you just cut and paste? And it's like, it's so hard to do the oral history because I always explain it. It's like being at a dinner party with 500 people who are getting progressively drunk and transcribing that dinner party. <laughs> so it's like you want to tell this linear narrative, but you've interviewed you know, hundreds of people, theoretically, and you have to combine it into a narrative that makes sense as though it's one singular story. You know, 99% of the interviews are interviews you've done. A couple of interviews are, you know, stuff either that you've you've managed to get from somebody else or um that you've um you know get from a transcript like the robin Co- coburn stuff um and then they say oh compiled by we're not compiling we're writing you know and and it's very challenging to make a cohesive narrative you know in an oral history where it just sounds like a conversation as though all these people were together talking well i was curious has the process changed at all since you did your first oral history to where you are now? Has there, like, just through learning lessons, have you been able to find a quicker way to do them? Or is it still just kind of the same process? No, it's the same slog. You know, it hasn't changed that much. I mean, I've maybe gotten a little quicker, you know, um, and my my 
way of organizing it after I do an interview might have changed slightly, but it hasn't fundamentally changed. Generally, the way we do these books is Ed and I, I usually say, these are the people ideally that I want to interview and we'll make a list like of everybody we think we want to get who's alive. Right. And then I'll say, these are people I'd like to go after. These are the people you go after. Generally, I like him to do the actors because I don't like talking to actors. Because I don't think they have that much to say. I, I prefer to go writers, directors, producers, and let him do actors, you know, and, um, you know, not exclusively, because on the Bond, I did talk to a bunch of actors. You know, also, I like to talk to people I haven't talked to before, mm -hmm. because right. if I have, I chance I have a good interview with them. I'd rather him ask things differently, you know, just like I want to interview people maybe he's interviewed before. Um, the Star Trek book, we sort of divided by, like, Next Generation was mostly my stuff, or I took the first pass at it, but including every, and then he would do like Deep Space Nine. And I specifically said I wanted to do Enterprise because at the time I hadn't seen that much of it. I had never written about it. And I thought, oh, okay, this will be really fresh for me to start from scratch. And it was really interesting because I didn't know the people who were involved because by then I had left writing about Star Trek and was doing my own thing. And, um, and with Bond, we kind of, you know, did it by movie it's like okay you do like um dr no through uh you only have twice and i'm not that we both don't work on each other's stuff but he'll do the first draft and then i did like under mercy secret service through was it die another day maybe world is not enough and and then you know and then he would do a couple after that and then i think i did so it was a great way to break it up. So I would rough out those chapters. He would rough out his chapters. I had his transcripts and then we'd switch and rewrite each other. Um, and it was a good way, you know, it was good. It worked for, it, it's worked for all these books. I have to say, I feel like he did more work on star Wars only because I was in production on the second season of Pandora and wasn't as involved. It couldn't be. So I did as much as I could on that. I think he did more interviewing and I did more rewriting on that, but I, I just didn't have the time to be as involved as I was with some of the other books, which is maybe why I don't talk about it as much. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, my favorite books, you know, the, the Star Treks and the Bonds, my favorite. Mm -hmm. I think the John Wick book is great too, actually. But um, And then the Galactica book, I love, but um, I hate the cover so much that I don't include it in that top tier. But the Galactica book was really great because... I um I did the original Galactica and he did the new Galactica. So that was like, and then I also wanted to include Galactica 1980 because I said, no one else is ever going to cover this. So we have to cover it. And I wrote a very perfunctory chapter. I reread it after we finished the book. And I'm just like, you know, I don't think I went deep enough. I'm going to do this again. He's like, what are you talking about? We got to turn this. I said, no, I said, no one else is ever going to write about this. And this is, there's such an interesting story here. And I, I want to know more. I want to know more. So I went and did a bunch more interviews and rewrote it. It's my favorite chapter of any of the books we ever did. I just think it's wacky and crazy stories and just insane. And I'm so glad I did. And I very rarely do that. I just want to be done and get paid. But in the case of Galactic 1980, I was like, <laughs> no, I'm going to rewrite it. And it's going to be really good. And it was. And I, I just wish in retrospect, that book is very thick, that they had reissued in paperback where Galactica, the original Galactica 80 were one book and the new Galactica was a second book because there's not as much crossover mm, between the mm. two shows as you would think. I mean, we have sort of the same attitude towards 
movies that people have forgotten about a lot of the time like it, unearthing these things like Battlestar 1980 is no one's favorite Battlestar show I can I can firmly guarantee that I think from from my experiences yeah. and, and people I've spoken to but like to, to be the one person that's going to go no we're going to dive into this and and be the one who unearths all these magical things that, that's why we like talking about you know films that people have not spoken about in 50 years well and it's also sometimes the 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 bombs or the things that are bad are more interesting to read about. There's this great mm-hmm. book that just came out. There are two new books about Dune. Ryan Britt wrote a good book about Dune, uh, which takes you from, you know, it's about the books and it's about the movies. There's another book that I love that just came out. And I forget what it's called. That's all the, about the making of um, uh, uh, David Lynch's Dune exclusively. And it's fantastic. And it's all about, you know, what went wrong with uh, Dune and, what went right and it's just great i like you you know that's why something like electric boogaloo that documentary about you know canon films um is so great it's mostly awful movies but that's so much more interesting than watching a documentary about casablanca again and you know casablanca is one of my favorite movies but you know i've read books about it i've seen documentaries it's like so you know watching a documentary about all these awful movies like you know death wish 4 and life force and superman 4 (laughs) like that's awesome so, you know, that's why Galactica 80, yeah, it's a terrible show, but how, why is it terrible? And and there's just so many great stories about why that show is as terrible as it is. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Keeping the lights on at Spy Hard's HQ ain't cheap. And frankly, nor is feeding the school of attack piranhas. So we need your help. Roger that, Scott. Only at the Spy Hard's Patreon can you gain access to exclusive shows like Agents in the Field, which tackles non-spy films starring your favorite spy icons, and The Debrief, where we channel our inner solitaires and predict how the big spy movie news of today will impact tomorrow. So make like a Treadstone agent and activate your Patreon membership at patreon.com slash spyhards today. Cam, tell the people what we have in our sites this week. Nurse that Halloween hangover by checking out episodes on The People Under the Stairs and the Rocky Horror Picture Show, or the latest episode of The Debrief, where we looked at the John Wick spin-off TV show, The Continental. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy chinks. One thing I wanted to ask, and Cam sort of brushed upon it, is, is about picking people to interview for the book. And you mentioned writing that list of, you know, targets you want we've got yeah. a similar list with people we want and you know you mentioned jane seymour yafet koto i mean jane seymour is like the gold standard well well done for for talking to her like that's uh that's a dream right there i had to jump through a lot of hoops to get to her but it, it worked out i'm i'm sure yeah yeah the star trek book helped oh it's because of how it did mm-hmm Mm. yeah well how did you go about picking that list and were there any that like you just couldn't get that you tried really hard and just couldn't get over the line Oh God, yeah. I mean, um, basically, if they had a pulse and it worked on Bond, you know, we <laughs> we we wanted them. Uh, you know, and and as I mentioned, like Michael Apted didn't happen. Um, yeah. and I think, uh, uh, you know, Lewis Gilbert died when we were in the process of setting that up. Um, you know, we were very lucky on that because you know a lot of people from the '60s had died, but Richard Schenkman very generously let us use stuff from Bondage for some of those early chapters that we didn't have. Um, like I said, part of it was I had done this like three, four hour interview with Tom Mankiewicz years ago that I never used. And 
I, it was nothing more exciting than finally having a home for this interview that I saved for 20, 30 years because he was such a great interview. And he'd been so generous with his time that I always felt terrible. Not that he remembered, but that I felt terrible. That I wasted his time never using his interview. And uh, so the fact that it became something so important because, you know, in the golden gun, live and let die diamonds are forever. Um, and spy love me. It became, uh, you know, really important. And it's funny because then you start to add to the list. I hadn't thought about interviewing John Landis until I was into the Spy Who Loved Me chapter. And I'm like, oh, I got to talk to John Landis about Spy Who Loved Me. And he was a great interview. And unfortunately, we talked about a lot of stuff I couldn't put in the book, like American Werewolf in London and other stuff, you know. Right. Um, but he was great. Um, and that was good because I had met him years ago at a film festival. When we were on the festival circuit with my first movie for Enterprise, I had met him at a film festival, I think in Edmonton. And we'd hit it off. So when I requested an interview, I said, oh, you probably don't remember. But, you know, we had met in Edmonton when you were there with a the movie with Susan's Plan. And I was there with Free Enterprise and love to talk to you about uh, Spy Love Me. And, and, you know, whether that helped or not, I don't know. He said yes. You know, so, um, you know, like Jane Seymour, it's like they said, well, we want to see the Star Trek books. And I sent over the Star Trek books so that she could see, you know, oh, OK, this is you know, major publisher and these are real books. And, you know, and they said, yeah, Jane, Jane looked at him and she wants to talk to you, which was great. Um, uh, you know, and, and I mean, there are probably so many, I mean, it's a couple of years now I'm looking to see, you know, um, but uh, obviously uh, Ed Gross had interviewed Bruce Fierstein over the years, many, many times. It was a great interview. Some of these people, are just rank tours like you know Mankiewicz and Bruce Fierstein and you know with Fierstein it's funny because you know Ed Ed got him to be a little too candid and then there's certain things that you know Fierstein didn't want him to like he's one of those people who loves Michael and 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 Barbara but has great stories that you know some of which he's willing to tell and some of which he's not um but he just can't help himself but then after the fact and because Ed had interviewed him so many times and was friendly with him, you know, Ed was a little, I think, willing to like say, okay, I'm not going to include that, which, you know, I'm not sure I would have done, but, you know, um, and then, you know, we talked to people too, like Fred Decker, who I just know, you know, are huge Bond fans, like Fred, who would think, talk to Fred Decker, director of Monster Squad, and, um, uh, you know, Robocop 3 and the Predator, it's because I mean, I know Fred Decker and I interviewed him for the Star Trek book and I, we talked about Bond for hours. Right. So it's like, I'm like, Oh, I'm doing a Bond book. You should talk about Bond. He says, you know, I never did a Bond movie. I said, I know, but you have great opinions about Bond movies. And that's the fun of these books too. It's like, we don't just talk to the people that worked on them. We talk to people who, um, who, who, who are fans, you know, but expert fans like you guys, you know, not like just somebody who's a fan. Like I like James Bond movies. You know, somebody who actually has something to say. Um, and it was great because, like, doing Fred Decker was so smart because he said, oh, have you talked to Jeff Clayman? And I'm like, no. And he goes, yeah, I'm doing a project with him over at, uh, you know, wherever they were doing it. And he says, I'll put you in touch. And then, you know, Jeff Clayman uh, gave me an amazing interview who was head of, you know, marketing and over at UA, MGM UA at the time of, of a lot of the Pierce movies. And he gave me that great stuff about, you know, golden eye and how the studio thought it was going to be a bomb and that nobody cared about james bond anymore and and um uh you know how how it was um you know the whole thing about how the studio said there's no way we're doing another timothy dalton movie and they explained it to cubby and cubby 
wrapped his cane and said, you know, we're going with Pierce and just like all the great stuff. I mean, I just, so, I mean, that was all because I talked to Fred. I would have never gotten Cleveland otherwise. Um, one of my favorite interviews was Martin Campbell. He was another guy who was super candid. Yeah. Like he didn't care about, he, he didn't care about Michael and, 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 you know, uh, Barbara, he was like happy to talk. And I went to his office and spent probably, that was a three hour interview and he was great, which was terrific because I got to, you know, pick off two, two movies. You always love it when they work on multiple movies. So I got, you know, him for golden eye and for, and for Casino Royale. And uh, he was just candid and in, really interesting and had great stories. And, um, you know, I, I mean, one of the people I wish we could have gotten, um, you know, was on Quantum. That was a weird one. He was another one I think we didn't get because of Eon, which I couldn't believe that um, uh, that on, on Quantum that he was not going to talk um, because I know, you know, it was not a good experience for him. and that movie has gone through a bit of a critical renaissance and I would have thought that he would have talked and for whatever reason we didn't get him. Um, but I, you know, I got obviously Paul Haggis who was great too. He gave me great stuff on, um, uh, casino and quantum. Uh, and I, you know, quantum something I would have liked to have dove even deeper into had we been able to get more. But as you said, the, the deeper we get in the more recent movies, the harder it is to get good stuff. Yeah, it's like I remember watching that um, Bond documentary they put out um, chronicling Dino Craig's era, and they were kind of like Quantum. You could see that like Barbara and Michael were kind of like, okay, that one was a bit of a challenge. We had issues on that one. But then they get to Spectre and nothing. Just like, yep, we had Spectre, and then we've got no time to die. Like, they were still not willing. Yeah, they only talk about what they want to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting, because like when I interviewed Michael... On license to kill he was willing to talk about all the movies but even then they were a bit of a you know they come from the old school of like studio like everything's great there are no problems you know he'll talk a little bit about yeah we went down the road of developing a bronze bronze prequel and it didn't work out but he's not going to be very self-aware or willing to talk about the things that went wrong like you know they're very defensive about you know um what they did especially when they were, were not getting the respect that they're getting now because, you know, Skyfall, well, Casino changed everything when it started getting all those rave reviews and people started treating Bond seriously. And, 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 and then all of a sudden, you know, it's interesting because I think Quantum probably would have gotten more respect if it had just been, you know, I mean, to me, it was like, oh, it was two years. Well, was, wasn't it two years between Casino yeah, Royale and Quantum? Like mm -hmm. that was you know, I didn't love it at the time, but in retrospect, I actually really like Quantum, and especially when you play it, you know, as a double feature with Casino Royale, which more theaters should do, mm, you know, yeah. um, and, uh, you know, because there's a movie made every two years, Quantum is fine, but it's just like, God, the, the six-year hiatuses, and now this, uh, I mean, you know, you get to the point where it's like, I hope I'm alive for the next Bond movie. It's like, <laughs> yeah, geez, it's like, um, I just, I, they seem so paralyzed and I just don't know when, I mean, tell you, we're recording this on James Bond day. Like there's mm -hmm. no announcements. There's not, it's crickets. Right. Um, and I just don't know when, you know, what, what are they going to do to follow up? 
No Time to Die. I mean, which is obviously a very divisive film and it didn't make the kind of money they did. There were extenuating circumstances, obviously, with the pandemic and it being pushed. I mean, that was what was so funny about the book. So the book was originally supposed to come out the same time as No Time to Die. Then yeah. It does, but No Time to Die gets pushed. So then they schedule the paperback for when No Time to Die is going to come out. And then No Time to Die gets pushed again and the paperback comes out <laughs> without anything to support it. So it's like by the time the movie comes out, it's like the hardcover and the paperback are out and it's like a year later or something, um, which was just nuts. Um, but you know who else? I mean, you know who was great? It was Barbara Carrera was a great interview. Yeah. And she obviously was willing, you know, happy to talk. And everybody on Never Say Never Again, that was no problem. You know, uh, Clement was fantastic um and had great stories and i'm so like that was another reason i was so glad to be able to include never say never again even though i don't particularly like the movie it's like such great stories i mean talk about a nightmare situation and then we had thanks to um shankman the the great ken mcclory interviews which really helped put that in context too so um just absolutely wild um and uh, I mean, where are you guys on the whole Octopussy Never? Since it is the 40th anniversary, where are you on the whole Octopussy Never Say Never Again, uh, uh, the Battle of the Bonds? Scott, uh, I, Cam knows my. Well, I'll go then. Sure, I'm a Never Say Never Again boy. I I actually Ooh. prefer it to Thunderball, personally speaking. Really, uh, I find wow. it just be more a more exciting, fun <laughs> film. All these like underwater sequences of just oh, let's spend 20 minutes hiding this aircraft underwater. I'm like, I, 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 don't, I don't need this. Yeah, but when it's John Barry instead of Michelle Legrand, uh, I'd take 40 minutes hiding that aircraft with John Barry. It's it's not without its problems. It's not without its problems, but I just kind of like that sort of 80s vibe. Connery's doing better than he did in, like, Diamonds. He, he's looking great. Um, Barbara Carrera is easily one of the best villainesses in the entire series, hands down. When did you see it? Did you see it for the first time on home video? Yeah, I, I have seen it in theaters since. I've seen okay. it at a theatrical showing, um, but I saw it first on home video, and yeah, uh, I, I I don't dislike Octopussy, but Never Say Never Again is also where I would go out the two. Wow, bold words. What about you, Cam? I am way more of an Octopussy guy. Uh, that was one of the earlier Bond films I watched as a kid. I'm a big Roger Moore fan, but you know, over time you kind of realize. <laughs> the better ones versus the worse and while view to a kill was my entry point i do not hold view to a kill in particularly high regard um or the man of the golden gun i suppose but octopusy is one that i just really love kind of the um you know bond has always been a trend hopping franchise and i love their kind of dabbling with indiana jones stuff in octopusy and the fact that like i'm also a big villain guy if you give me a bond movie with a really cool villain I'm on board. And Octopussy has like 12. <laughs> like they're all so iconic across the board. See, I'm I, I'm totally with you on this. Like I remember thinking, oh, never say never again. Sean Connery is going to blow Octopussy out of the water. And I really liked Octopussy. Pete, you know, I'm very defensive about it. People say, oh, Roger Moore dresses as a clown. Well, he dresses as a clown for a good reason. Right. Mm -hmm. And that scene is so suspenseful where he's like trying to get to the bomb and everything is thrown, all these obstacles are thrown in his way. And then finally, when, you know, he goes, turns to Maude Adams and is like, you got to tell him who I am and let me get to the bomb. And she makes the decision to to be honest, even though it's going to land her in jail. It's like, and it, you got the John Barry thing going on. And then, you know, he he hacks open the thing at the start. I love that. And I love the auction scene. And, I, you know, Louis Jordan's a little not great. And then the whole Dennis, uh, Desmond Llewellyn showing up with the girls at the end is ludicrous but i loved it as a teenager yeah. and um and uh 
but never say never again, man. Oh, I just I see what a mess. I just I just like all that stuff at the end with the tears of Allah and I mean the playing the video game and and oh god. The video game is fun. L- listen, if 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 they had a John Barry score and a gun barrel on Never's Never Again, I think it would be in a lot of people's like top 15 Bond films. Make those tiny little changes. You know, but I have to say I I'm a big Thunderball fan. So I think okay. that may also be like there are two schools. Obviously, the people that think it's boring and the people that love it. Like Thunderball has like I love the freaking teaser on Thunderball so much with Jack Bouvet. Yeah. And then I ju- I love um uh, um uh, what's her name? Um uh, uh oh my god, I'm losing it. Luciana Paluzzi. Well, I love her. How could you not Lu- Luciana Paluzzi um who's just amazingly a great vi- villain henchman, henchwoman. And I, I, you know, and I always used to remember on ABC watching where uh, he's at the junk canoe and uh, the girl, he's, uh, you know, uh, she gets shot and he turns to the girl and says, oh, do you mind if my friend says this one out? She's just dead. Uh, I I mean, it's just me. My brother used to always laugh at that. It's a terrible witticism, but we love it. And um, yeah, the ending, the ending slow, but the score is so great. And, you know, I like Largo. I think he's a good villain. I know a lot of people think he's boring. It's Terrence Young. I just love it. And then, you know, never say it ever again. Look, I liked it in 83, probably. And I I watched them both on video all the time. Um, and I like Barbara Carrera and a lot in that. But man, I thought I, I think Octopussy gets a bad rap from people. I think it's been much better than people give it credit for. I, I, I don't think I'm gonna convince you on this episode, but I think <laughs> I might have another try at getting you on board with Never Say Never Again at some point. Uh, never say never when it comes to Never Say Never Again. It's so campy. It's it's like a Batman episode. It's, it's great. No it's it's so fun. <laughs> ah, I, I'm not going to win you over. It's okay. It's okay. But like, I, I was going to wrap us up with a sort of a, not wrap us up over, but like with Bond discussion a little bit. It was sort of a more of a meta textual question about the, the franchise itself. Because we could keep talking about bits in the book, but I want people to check the book out. I don't want to give spoilers. I want <laughs> okay. to go and read the book. Me too. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Tell them Spy Hard sent you. But, you know, looking at Bond now, they, they just blew him up. He's also in Smithereens, like Yafet Koto at the end of Live and Let Die. Where would you like to see the franchise go now? Well, you know, I'm sure you guys saw this rumor, which we all know is not true, but that, mm-hmm. oh, Chris Nolan will do, uh, is, is in talks to do two Bond movies. Uh, it's set in the 60s, you know, which are more faithful. But like, obviously, that's the dream, right? But there's no way that's happening. There's no way that uh, Eon would give up the responsibility to an auteur filmmaker like that. The closest they got was Sam Mendes, and they drove Sam Mendes insane. You know, <laughs> uh, so it's like even Sam Mendes, after making Casino Royale, he still gets noted to death and screwed over on Spectre. It's like so- I saw Empire of Light. He's clearly gone insane. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the fact is, you really think they're going to hand the keys to the kingdom? I'll never forget. This is great. I'm in, at the Sigis Film Festival. Um, I knew Quentin a little bit. Um, and but so we're, we're sitting at dinner and all of a sudden Quentin goes running by and then he sees us and he comes in at, at, to dinner where we are. We're all seated. And he says, can I can I sit and have dinner with you guys? And we're like, yeah, of course. And uh we got into this long conversation about how he wanted to do a Bond movie. And this is before Casino Royale and how his dream was to do Casino Royale. And he said, they'll, they'll never let me do it. They'll never let me do it because they won't let me have control. So it, it's never going to happen. But he's like, I want to do it with Pierce Brosnan. He said, I want to do Casino Royale with Pierce. It'd be amazing. And uh, or maybe it was after 
but he was talking about how he would have done it and how it didn't happen. Um, but it was, uh, it was so funny. And he's like, um, so guys, can I hang out with you? Uh, and, it, and we were all like, well, you know, um, we were all going to go back to the hotel and everybody's going to get changed and stuff for, for the movies tonight. He goes, okay, bye. And so he runs. So, so he leaves and he just, after ordering like hundreds of dollars worth of Dom Perignon and food, I was like, oh, great. Thanks a lot. But, um, <laughs> he, he, but, uh, but he, 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 you know, articulated that whole idea that there's no way, you know, an A-list filmmaker is going to do a Bond movie because they're not going to have that level of control. And obviously Chris Nolan is not going to do a movie in which he has to take one note from these two, not one note. So unless the only hope we have is that like Michael's obviously really, you know, getting on in years that he may be done because he has more money than God. What does he need to do this for? And then Barbara as we know, has little to no interest in these movies. He'd rather be producing all this other stuff um, that, you know, maybe the idea of like turning it over to somebody like Chris Nolan and not having to be involved may suddenly have more appeal than it's ever had. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know, but um, it would be amazing. It would be amazing. It would be amazing. I just love this because there's so much love there, you know, he has for Bond. And I think, uh, you know, an intrinsic understanding of like what could be great about it. And he's, you know, just a, a true, you know, filmmaking auteur and it would be amazing. But I just don't know. I was like the next Bond movie, who is it going to be? Who's going to direct it? You know, I really like the guys personally, you know, the, um, the writers who they keep going back to again and again. But I think they may be a little written out after 25 years i know they're the house writers at this point but mm -hmm. you know the whole idea well, well we're going to start with them but we're always going to bring in somebody to rewrite them well maybe start with somebody that uh maybe has it you know somebody new i mean they made a career out of writing bond movies and god bless them i mean the whole richard maybell model but again and i think they're both terrific guys um i i only spent they were not those were other two who i kind of had met a couple of times and was pretty friendly with because we'd gone drinking. But mm. when time came to try and interview them for the book and I really wanted them for the book, that was a no, that was, yeah. you know, for obvious reasons because, you know, who wants to derail the gravy train? Right. And I can imagine like the answer to that question is, is very different for like Mark the fan and then Mark the, you know, director, screenwriter, you know, book writer yeah also, i mean it's, definitely it's a different angle altogether because i'm sure like your 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 screenwriter head could could come at it from its own angle but like what we want as fans is very different and i i'm i'm curious to see what they do next because it, the the it's wide open now they could do what they want they've blown it up they can literally do anything which is what's exciting and also terrifying because like i said i do think it's paralyzed them in terms of like they're really worried like what because universally i mean even though they're fans who don't like daniel craig which i don't understand but they there are friends who really don't like daniel craig you know you, almost universally that's considered a brilliant decision right mm -hmm. and i'm the first to admit i thought it was a terrible decision until i saw casino royale when i heard that i'm like what? daniel craig i mean i they were 100 percent right i was 100 percent wrong he's 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 great and you know he's not to blame for any of these movies being terrible these last two movies but um but uh, you know, when you have that higher bar, it's like it's got to be really tough. And now you got Amazon breathing down your necks as well. Who's going to be Bond? What is the movie going to be? I mean, we live in a world where 
all these years, the last 10 years, they've been compared unfavorably to Mission Impossible. Now Mission Impossible doesn't even work. Mm-hmm. And it's like you keep taking, you know, you're worried about, oh, is the new generation even interested in Bond? And then you you do a movie like Casino Royale or Skyfall that brings a whole new generation. And then you wait all these years. So they've outgrown it by the time the next movie comes out. You have a whole nother generation that's never heard of Bond or doesn't care. So it's like that's another reason when they came out every two years, you know, and they were on TV all the time. You were constantly creating new fans, like obviously the GoldenEye video game. But how do you you come out with a divisive film like no, 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 no Way to Die, and then maybe the next film comes out six, seven years later? Who's the audience for that other than us diehards? And you can't have a, mil, a billion dollar inter, you know, global uh, uh, movie um, you know, on, the, on the backs of just the diehards, uh, which is the, the real challenge for these movies going forward. Um, and you know, the question is, if you start to make them for less money, are they going to have the spectacle? Because they, they've never been able to. I mean, you remember Quantum of Solace was the most expensive film ever made for that running time per per minute of screen time, the most expensive film ever made. And it doesn't look that way. It's a beautiful looking movie, but it certainly doesn't look like, you know, a movie that's like the most expensive movie ever made, you know, for under two hours. And, um, uh, you know, so. You can't keep spending money. I mean, it's the thing we saw about the new Mission Impossible would have been very successful if it was made for half the price, right? So how do you sustain Bond without, you know, having to make a billion dollars um, and and keep people interested? Well, I think one way is to have them come out more frequently. Um, I mean, that's what I said about Woody Allen movies. I said, you know, he comes has a new movie every every year. Not everyone's good. Not everyone's great. But Every year there's a new movie and then some of them are great. And then you don't mind if the next year it's not that good because, you know, next year there's going to be another one. And it was the same way with the Bond movies every two years. Um, You know, and I understand every two years is probably much, but every three years is not too much to ask for. Every six, seven years is ridiculous. It's ridiculous for something like, like where you're not waiting to see if it's successful. You know, it's successful. Why aren't you ready to roll in? Oh, we need time to recover. Well, when you keep it so insular, you know, you need time to recover and you're all, you know, and, and they're not spring chickens either, but, you know, and I know that the, 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 the grandchildren are, are, you know, getting more involved, but it's like it normally I would say having a family that's protective of franchise is a good thing, given what's happened to other franchises we love, but there is such a thing as being too protective. And, you know, I'd like to see them start taking risks again, like they did when they cast Daniel. Like who the hell's going to be Bond? I mean, who do you guys want to see? I'm sure you've discussed this. I I don't tend to wade too much into it because I'm usually I I don't want to know yeah who it's going to be. I don't want to have a theory. I want to be surprised. But like if they told me it's Aaron Taylor Johnson, that's the name that's been thrown around at the moment. I'd be okay with it. He's big enough, but not too big. Sure. Uh, and he can act. I've seen him in enough films where he's got enough range. Cool. Just but like I just want them to move. Like. Yeah announce it let's go this i know the strikes obviously they've changed things they've delayed things and eon's not a british company it's sort of global so of course the strikes have hit it um i mean you yourself just got out of your own strike with the writers guild yeah uh, you know congratulations on that being settled and yeah i, I imagine there's there's problems there but like 
there's things they could have done to sort of appease the fans. As you mentioned, it's Global James Bond Day, whatever that means today, which doesn't mean... I was I, afraid they were just going to start promoting a stupid reality show. Because that's <laughs> what we... That's like, well, now, you know, for the people who brought you James Bond Jr. comes our James Bond reality show. <laughs> there, there was a trailer this morning, if you missed it. Don't worry, they did, uh, oh, they did promote okay. it. Great. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, that's the reaction I had too. Um, and, and one thing, I mean, just sort of spinning off into something else a little bit is, and then kind of in answering to this question i've noticed a problem with the bond franchise it's the same problem i've noticed with the star trek franchise going to a lot of conventions with with cam one thing we've noticed over the years is the average age of an attendee is is just well, getting higher and higher mm-hmm. it, there, there are not young kids walking around in cosplay no. unless they're being dragged by their parents and you know i go to a lot of bond things here in london again it's a lot of people my age mid 30s to mid 40s to mid 50s and you know it's not a bad thing I, i'm glad for these people but I, I want i discovered bond through the golden eye game you mentioned it earlier mm-hmm. like that was mm-hmm. my first inroad where's that yep, where's that actual to bring me to me junior in and it doesn't exist right now well my my son is 14 years old and to his credit he's not like a lot of kids in the sense that he has really good taste in movies like citizen kane's one of his favorite movies he loves jimmy cagney he has like really good taste right um and I like to expose him to a lot of different kinds of films. And I never expect him. I always say, I don't expect you to like what I like. I just want to give you the chance to see. And he loves things like Logan's Run and a lot of the movies that I grew up on. Um, he He's not a big Star Trek fan. He doesn't dislike it. And that's fine with me. Like, I don't care if he likes Star Trek or not. The one thing I was really hoping, though, was that he would love Bond movies, right? Because it's what you said. It's like... and. For a while, we we watched a bunch of them, and he really loved the early Connery Bond movies. Loved them. We got into Roger Moore. He liked them. And by the time we were getting to Goldeneye, he stopped like watching. He like he wasn't that. It. And I keep saying, when are we gonna watch Goldeneye? I mean, it's been like two years now, and he's just like not that interested. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and I mean, I remember when No Time to Die came out. I said, well, you want to like finish the Bond marathon so we can go see No Time to Die? And normally he's really excited about seeing this stuff. I say, eh. and it's like if my son is not in, and he and every time i talk to him he says yeah but you know they're not making sean connery bond movies anymore it's like he's like and i'm like but yeah of course they're not so but there are worthwhile bond movies after that it's like because he likes spy love me and i mean he liked you know he didn't like octopussy the way i liked it you know he didn't i think he you know he didn't love four eyes only um but he he um he he you know he's huge but he really liked the sean connery bond movies and um and i was like but yeah but you i think you really like goldeneye i'm like i think you really i think the pierce ones i think you really like i don't know if you're gonna like any of that but you really like goldeneye and i just can't get him to watch it and then i want him to you know i want him to see casino royale and skyfall and stuff but you know he 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 won't watch stuff out of order so it's like he wants to watch everything so i'm like let's watch and i i can't i keep saying let's watch goldeneye Eh, not tonight yeah. and it's like oh man it's like that bond is like the one thing where i want him to love it as much as me you know yeah. and and it's just it's he's just not can't can't get him there i'm but maybe that'll change but i don't know just uh give him james bond jr see how he gets on with that yeah i could <laughs> i could bring him back yeah exactly i mean it was so funny because he could do the whole donald pleasant speech and you only live twice in the volcano he would go around the house with our cats and pet them and 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 do the whole pleasant speech from you so i'm like this is great 
he's so into that. I gave my James Bond encyclopedias. I gave him a DB7. Like, you know, and, and it's so funny because I got all those sideshow action figures. And I, you know, I talk about this on the Trexpers podcast. One day I see my Blofeld is missing. I'm like, what are you playing with the Blofeld? He know I was using his Lex Luthor. It's like, God <laughs> damn it. <laughs> well, it's funny because I have a friend whose son is about the same age as your son. And they were going through the Bonds and really into kind of the same, the Conneries, the Roger Moores. When they got to the Craigs, I think they skipped over the Daltons. Um, mm. But when they were going through the Craigs, they didn't really connect as well. Like he just kind of found them a little bit confusing. Um, you know, things like what is Le Chiffre actually doing in Casino mm. Royale makes sense to us. I could see that being confusing for a kid. Yeah. yeah. And just kind of like, what's the payoff to that movie? It's, Le Chiffre is kind of shot by mysterious people and you kind of don't get the kind of the um, blockbuster fulfillment you get from the earlier movies that I think is very appealing, especially to people like me who discovered the franchise when they were 10 years old. Yeah. And I think that's a really great point, Cam, because I think part of why we fell in love with Bond at that age was obviously these incredible locations. Like we got to see the world, because you know, you could be wherever you live, but then all of a sudden you're seeing, and it wasn't as common to see, you know, all these amazing cities and these beautiful things. That's what I love about the beginning of No Time to Die. I'll give that the credit, the beginning I like, because that's an amazing place they found. But, um, you know, they've become less travelogues. Obviously, beautiful women. That was incredible. And Bond was an aspirational character, you know, despite what people say now, the misogyny and all that. But for the most part, he was self-sufficient. He was, you know, he was cool. He was, you know, he could, you know, do all this stuff. And he was fighting for, you know, the, to, to make the world a better place, right? He was, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, he had these great witticisms. So he's a very aspirational character. So with Daniel Craig, who I love and I love some of his movies, he's not aspirational. He's miserable. Like, I mean, he's not happy. He, he, he's a blunt instrument, as they say, you know, and, he has not found joy. He doesn't take joy. In, like Roger Moore, whatever you think of it, he took joy in what he did, right? Mm-hmm. He he had fun. And 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 General Craig is not having fun, uh, which is you know, right for what he's playing. But um, as a result, I think for that 10 or 13 or 14-year-old kid, it's not an aspirational character. Plus, this whole idea that he's a character who we're not supposed to like the Barbara idea that. Well, you know, he's a really loathsome, misogynist, pig kind of character. You really shouldn't like James Bond that much, you know? And it's like, well, but that's, that doesn't make it fun if he's not likable, right? In some way. Um, and, uh, you know, the movies have become, you know, it's like, I just, you know, plus it was a family because you had Q, the doddering old uncle, and, you know, M you know, the tough, stern dad who really loved him, but acted like he didn't, you know, and, and, you know, now it's, 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 it's so different. Um, And you don't have that quality. So I understand why maybe people, you know, aren't responding the way we responded to it. And they say also, oh, you know, there's all these other franchises, but, you know, Mission Impossible is just about spectacle, even at its best just about spectacle like i can't tell you you tell me the name of mission possible i can't tell you what happened <laughs> you know in that movie i don't remember the plot they're all interchangeable you tell me a bond i can tell you exactly what that movie is about what the plot of that is you know because bond is really story and plot driven and villain driven 
But Mission Impossible, and I like them. Don't get me wrong. I like the Mission Impossible movies a lot, but they're all completely interchangeable in my mind. Like, I don't remember, like, this Rogue Nation is this, and, you know, this is this, and, you know, I can tell you what the second one was. That's the crazy John Woo one with the with the birds, with the doves. Right. That I can tell you. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but, so, I don't know what it is, but I do think it's a lot about the fact that, you know, Bond isn't on as much, and Maybe it was that it was on TV all the time. And so you'd watch it and, and fall in love with it. And, um, but it's, it's, it's upsetting because even they're not chumming the waters for us diehards. Like the easy thing would be for the 50th anniversary, they had that gorgeous Blu-ray set. Where's the 4k set? You know, they threw them out in this bland box with Daniel Craig, you know, for, you know, for the movies, there's no packaging. There's no cool that had those cool books. And it came in a night case and it was gold. It felt like substantial and special and collectible. There's nothing like that. How could, how could, I mean, Amazon owns them and we don't have a 4K set because they're probably waiting until the next movie comes out to put it. No, put them out now. Then you'll put them out again. Yeah. It's like, we'd all buy it again. I mean, and I've, I've joked about this. I've bought Bond more times than any series ever, including Star Trek, including, I mean, you know, from the original VHS multiple times for multiple di- the laser discs. I bought all the laser discs. I bought it on DVD multiple, multiple times, on Blu-ray multiple, multiple times. And 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 then also, you know, all the 4Ks that are available, which are just the Craigs. Um, and of course I have them on digital where they're all in 4K on iTunes, including Never Say Never Again. So and I buy the next set in a heartbeat. It's like one thing I I will always buy the Bond movies. Yeah, and I, I because of all the things that I like to go back to, of all the movies I like to rewatch, I probably go back to the. I certainly go back to the Bond movies more than I go back to Star Trek movies to rewatch. They're just so watchable. They're so repeat. That's why when Pluto had that ridiculous, you know, the Bond channel. Even though I have all the Bond movies a million times, I can watch them any which way without commercials. I'll still put on Pluto to see which one's on, and I'll inevitably watch it for hours even with the commercials. Well, I was going to ask a question about Trek, but I'm going to change the question slightly to more about Inglorious Trexperts because, you know, you've got a couple of podcasts going, Inglorious Trexperts, the 430 movie. But I want to know, judging from your fandom of Bond, when is the Mark A. Altman-helmed Bond podcast coming? Because it feels like uh, it feels like you've got the uh, the weaponry to, to do it. Well, I... I um... I thought about doing it when No Time to Die was coming out because it would have promoted the book. But then when it got pushed and the book was already <laughs> out for a year, um, and then I just, I literally could not, I just didn't have the bandwidth to do another podcast. You know, time, you know first of all, the podcasts themselves are not something that make us money. I mean, obviously the promotional appearances and the book and things that come out of it, you know, but so for me to put, many many hours into doing another podcast in time i just i can't do it i mean i'm i'm i have too much other too many obligations and you know um too many other things and i really i would have liked to we talked about doing a limited podcast where maybe we would have done like 10 weeks or 25 weeks you know and do each movie and or maybe i'd use some of the interviews i did for the books which i and and i, I would have loved to have done it because it would have been fun because i love talking about bond movies but it just wasn't it wasn't feasible to do um 
and uh and they're also good bond podcasts obviously you're not exclusively bond but you're doing great work um i really liked uh, matt gorley and um uh matt myra and matt myra's uh podcast although it, it would be infuriating because like they say they're enthusiasts and not experts and so they get a lot of their facts wrong and i'd be sitting listening and I'm like, what are you doing? what's so wrong you're completely wrong not about opinions <laughs> like about facts like no they weren't in that movie or that movie was that's not how it happened you know it's like but uh but I enjoyed it because I thought they had a certain frivolity and 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 they they're, they're clever and obviously I interviewed Gorley for the book, um, but um, but uh, but I I toyed with I thought about it but it just it, it just it's too much work for too little payoff, mm-hmm. you know I mean Inglorious Treks was is very successful we have a, a big listenership but you know the you know the advertising revenue you know it, it's just like you yeah it's just not these things all have a ceiling. You know, and so unless, you know, we can make a ton of money from it, it's not worth the work. I'm already doing one show that I'm doing for passion, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, fourth three movie I love to do also, but it's, you know, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, you know, and, and their costs associated with doing those. And I just, you know, not, you know, it's not something that I, I, I yeah, I would definitely you look, who knows when the next movie comes out, maybe I don't know, but I, I'm not I have no plans to do it at this point. You can always live vicariously through us if you'd like. There you go. We'll have yeah. you back anytime. No, sure. it's great. And I get to listen to you guys talk to, you know, all the people that you talk to and you know, always such great movies that you cover and you know, great and like uh, you know, like Spy Games a movie that doesn't get enough love, which I think is a mm-hmm. terrific uh, movie and you know like where else are you gonna listen to people talk about the president's analyst or talk about robert davi talking to his iguana even <laughs> that story that was an interesting story he told about talisa soto how he played bond in the screen test and his pick was talisa soto which i'm just like this is why you don't let actors make these decisions it's like yeah <laughs> because, uh, i mean he, he obviously is she's she's beautiful and uh i i get that and i understand in being in the room with her at that time she must have felt totally magnetic but uh, I mean, somebody should have stopped that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I've, you have John Glenn, who everybody other than Davi says is not an actor's director. And then you have, uh, you know, and it's just like, yeah. So they said, why don't you pick who you want? Well, I want Talisa. Well, yeah, I can understand you want Talisa, but she's not the right woman for that movie. I mean, she, she's, I mean, that I, the, the movie, the casting across that movie is so bad, you know, other than obviously David Hedison, it's great to have him back. And, um, you know, Anthony Zerby's good as a sort of sniveling, cowardly guy. And Carrie Lowell's good. But, um, but man, a lot of the supporting performances. And it's funny because the guy who played Sharky, who died last year, he's good in a lot of other movies, but man, he's terrible in License to Kill. <laughs> And, well, it uh, all comes back to uh, license to kill. <laughs> I, I just—it's—it's it's like bookended the discussion, hasn't yeah. it? It's, for a uh, long yeah. time, people say, "Oh, what's your least favorite Bond movie?" That was my least favorite Bond movie for a while. But wow! Yeah. But you know, now it's kind of a toss-up between A View to a Kill, Man with the Golden Gun, and License to Kill. But License to Kill is moved up. At least it's ambitious. It's True. trying to do something different, and it's got some good stunts. I just, you know, I, I there's no payoff for the the Chinese agents and that whole scene where mm. the house is blown up with the tank and it, the way that scene is directed where he's underneath, he's pinned under and they show up and then the tank blows it. I'm just, and it just looks like cheap and terribly directed and just, ugh. but then there's the truck chase, which is great. 
Yeah. You know? So I, I, you know what? I, I love the scene at the Hemingway house because that's the oh, first yeah. time they did it where, 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 um, you know, M says, don't shoot the people. And it's completely empty, but he doesn't want them to shoot. He needs an excuse for them not to kill Bond. It's like, that's a great scene. I guess this is a farewell to arms. I like that scene a lot. Well, uh, yeah, I mentioned the the podcast. The One of the other questions I was going to wrap us up with is, you know, well, the strikers hour did as well, but like, what have you got on the bubble at the moment? What are you working on? I know the Inglorious Trexperts just launched a uh, a Kickstarter GoFundMe to boldly go. Tell us about that. And so what have you got upcoming? Yeah, we did it. We did a Kickstarter for a documentary um, that uh, we're going to be shooting next year about the locations of the great Star Trek locations, um, which nobody's ever looked at it through that lens before. So that'll be interesting. Um, and that successfully funded. Obviously, we, we need to raise some additional money um, before we shoot, but uh, we'll be shooting next year. Um, uh, but uh, we're doing that with Terry, Terry Farrell, who's in it. It's going to be great. Um I'm doing a TV series, hopefully next year, called Deathlands, based on a series of books um, that's still um, coming together. Obviously, we have the podcast and Glorious Trexperts and 430 Movie. Um, there's a couple other things cooking that are really interesting that hopefully will come to fruition. You know, uh, thankfully, the, you know, the actor strike is over. Hopefully, the SAG strike will be over soon and we can all get back to work, which is, you know, what we really want to do. And a quick book question. You wrote, you know, you're the John Wick book mm-hmm. and now you know you've got the continental airing uh you've got ballerina coming out in the future would there ever be like a revised kind of coverage of john wick or you just kind of like leave it behind I, I, you know that's a good question i don't know i mean that's really up to i don't know how well it's sold i don't remember i mean i i haven't looked at my statements recently it, it's really up to the publisher to say hey yeah we'd want to update mm-hmm. like i think it'd be great to update it for paperback but i wanted to do that with you know, they put the first Bond uh, Star Trek book out in paperback, and then the second one, uh, I don't know what they were doing. And I said, let us update it for the paperback version, at least add an extra chapter. It was the same thing with the Bond book. We said, well, add an extra chapter on No Way to Die, on No Time to Die. And, you know, they never want to do that. So, like, with, that's what I would say for Wick put it on paperback, and then we'll add an extra chapter on this stuff. But it was really interesting because I remember when I was interviewing Basil Iwanek, who produced the movies. Who's just a terrific interview. I'm I'm really grateful to him. He's one of my favorite people to talk to. I talked to him multiple times for the book. He was like, we we hope or we're developing this as a cinematic universe, John Wick cinematic universe. He says, I hope there's an audience. We don't know until Continental comes out and Ballerina comes out and some of this other stuff, where we'll find out, you know, whether or not there actually is an audience or they're all here to see Keanu as John Wick. And so that remains to be seen. I hope so, because I think it's an interesting universe that they've created and uh i like all the people involved with those pictures um and you know keanu's terrific and um you know the producers and obviously uh i'm a big fan of david leach's atomic blonde uh mm-hmm. which is why it was funny i snuck that into that book and um they uh i remember them that was they wanted to cut it that chapter just to make the book shorter so they could keep the price down and I'm just like, no, I, first of all, I wrote it. I didn't want to cut it after. And I said, I really like Atomic Blonde. And I think it's, you know, worthwhile to have these non um, Wick stuff in here. And they finally agreed. Um, and they said, no, we like the chapter. We just thought maybe it'd be worth, you know, looking for places to cut. We ended up cutting a little Bond stuff at the top. Um, 
you know, because we talk a little bit about, because when we talk about the history of the action genre, obviously we talk about Bond. And so there was a bunch of Bond stuff that we ended up cutting, um, uh, you know, early on because they wanted to get to Wick quicker. They wanted to mm-hmm. get to Wick quicker. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the history of the action genre stuff got cut so that the Wick would come sooner. Um, and, uh, and, and that was fine because we already did our bond book. I think this is a chance just to revisit it, you know, any excuse to write about James Bond, but I, I'm very proud of, I, I think the book book turned out really well because I, I was really, like I said, they asked us to do it. And I was very wary of, is there a, an interesting book in it? And I think it turned out to be a very interesting book with some really great stories about that. Um, and I found it interesting as a, uh, writer and producer myself, um, you know, how much they got told no and how much, um, how many times that almost didn't happen. And, you know, all the obstacles that they faced that they ended up being triumphant over. I, I think it's really great. Well, the last question I have for you, sir, and this question has been asked to everyone we've had on the show, even all the way up to Mr. Robert Davy, Mark A. Altman, what is your favorite spy movie of all time? Yeah, that's a good, it's a really good question. And my first, I mean, you guys, you said yesterday, I think on the social, you would say Notorious, which might be, but I'm not going to say that because you already said Notorious. I think I'm <laughs> going to go back to a movie that loomed as large in my adolescence as the Bond movies and say a Charade with Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn, although it's not about spies, it's about agents. Right, <laughs> right. But, uh, but um but uh, I, I absolutely adore that movie. It's been called the best Hitchcock movie Hitchcock never made. Obviously, mm-hmm. Stanley Donen directed it. Um, it's funny and charming and smart and has this amazing cast. And I can't tell you how many times I use Carson Dial as my alias for things. I even go into restaurants. People don't understand. They say, they say oh, your name? I said, Carson Dial. And then they said, well, well, who's Carson Dial? I said, no, Carson Dial it's from Charade. Um, but I, I love, I adore that movie so much. Uh, um, Criterion did a great Blu-ray of it. The remake is abysmal by Jonathan Demme. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, Walter Matthau's great James Coburn, George Kennedy. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just a great movie, but yeah, it would be a toss up between Notorious and Charade probably. Charade's a great pick. And actually I'm surprised that you are the first person to mention it because it yeah. is a pretty iconic spy movie. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I love it. I've always loved it. It used to be on TV all the time when I was a kid. Um, I watched it all the time voraciously. You know, it's it's one of those films that I, I mean, I remember my parents saying, "Oh, yeah, I think you'll love this." And I watched it, you know, on Channel Five or something in New York when it was on, and have loved it. I got a giant. That was the first thing when I sold Free Enterprise, my first script. The first thing I did was I went out and bought a charade one sheet, which I framed and put up my house. It's still in my house. Um, and uh um i just and and it's an example of really great writing peter stone who wrote it just fantastic and uh uh i i when i it was funny many years ago i was invited to be a guest at a star trek convention in paris of all things the first thing i did when i went to paris was to go to the palais where they filmed the ending of charade and took all these pictures uh behind the pillar that um you know, a Regina Lampert hid behind and Cary Grant was and uh, Walter Matthau. And I just, I love it. I still got those pictures of, uh, of, uh, <laughs> of the ballet. And uh, that was the most exciting for me. The most exciting thing going to France was seeing where they filmed charade. So uh big, big, big fan of charade. 
Having uh, having just uh, taken Cam to the Royal Albert Hall and reenacted a fist fight on the steps of it uh, from the Ipcris file, I know exactly <laughs> how you feel. I love it. I love yeah. it. Well, I may be able to top that. So when we went to Dallas with the Free Enterprise, uh, when we were on the festival circuit, the the first thing we did in Dallas was we went to the Dallas Apparel Mart where they filmed uh, Last Day in Logan's Run. Oh, shortly wow. before it was uh, 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 where it was before it was torn down. Wow. Um, yeah. So that was pretty that. cool. <laughs> I think you win that one. I think yeah. you win that one. Well, you know, everyone go and buy a copy of Nobody Does It Better and then buy every other one of Mark's books because we said so. But Mark, where can people find you online? Where can people find all your podcasts? They can find me at Mark A. Altman on Twitter and Instagram or um, Inglorious Trek or Inglorious Trek Spritz on uh, or Twitter or X or whatever the hell it's called and, and Instagram. Um, they can buy the books at Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any of the, any of the places you normally buy books. Um, I, I hope they will. I'm very proud of the books. And I think for anybody who's interested in writing or television or just fans of these things, they'll, they'll love them. And, uh, of course you can listen to the podcast wherever you listen to the podcast or go to trexpertsplus.com, which will take you to, uh, to the, to the, to the shows and the 430 movies coming back in the fall. Um, we did a couple of bond weeks. Uh, previously, and uh, Inglorious Trexperts is on 52 weeks a year, much to my chagrin. Our new season <laughs> recently premiered, and uh, it's been great. We've had Jonathan Frakes on the show, and Walter Koenig this week is uh, Todd Stashwick and Terry uh, and Terry Metalis. Um, we've got some great episodes, and then our infamous holiday specials are coming in November. Awesome. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. If you're a Star Trek fan, check out Inglorious Treks Puts. Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I'm glad we've finally done it. Uh, first of many, I hope. But uh, again, thank you for your time, sir. No, thank you, guys. I, I got to tell you, I get invited to go on a lot of podcasts. And each, I'm not you know, lying when I say it's like, I'm just very busy. It's very hard for me to carve out time for my day. And I, you know, I generally say no. You know, very appreciatively, but no. But you know, having met you guys in Vegas and having listened to your podcast, I had to say yes, and I'm glad I did. So uh, keep on spying hard, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Awesome, thank you, Mark. Okay, and now we all start singing like Robert Davi. No, okay, <laughs> bye, guys. Take care. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat with Mr. Mark A. Altman. Nobody does it better than him uh, i want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us urge you all to go out and grab a copy of nobody does it better and check out his marvelous podcasts inglorious true experts the 430 movie it's all out there there'll be links in the show notes below but cam what did you think of the chat well you know scott it's actually pretty funny because i feel like my life as sort of a burgeoning cinephile at a younger age mm -hmm. is somewhat linked or kind of tied to mark altman and I didn't mention this in the interview, but okay. when I was about 13, maybe 14 years old, I bought an issue of Cinescape magazine. Sure. And Mark Altman would write a column, an opinion column, at the end of each issue of Cinescape magazine. And like they were really polarizing. People would be writing in letters. They would be angry about things he'd said about the Star Trek franchise or Bond or various other pop culture things. And I would breathlessly read those articles every single issue I bought of Cinescape. So I was very aware of who Mark Altman was when we did this interview. But also over the years, I would see him pop up mm -hmm. doing things like the 50-year mission books, the Bond book, uh, so many other projects. And I would always go, oh, of course, Mark Altman. I know who that guy is. Cinescape magazine from back in the day.
Well, I had a, a similar experience, but just tied to sort of his early Bond novels. One when I mean, Cow and I have been speaking to Mark for a while. We actually met him, as we mentioned in the episode in in Vegas a few months ago. But you know, I I went back through some of my old Star Trek textbooks, and I actually had his Captain's Logs book that he co-wrote with his co-writer since that time, uh, Edward Gross, who co-wrote Nobody Does It Better with him as well. Uh, and that's one of the books alongside the Star Trek Next Generation Companion that I had on my shelf in the mid-90s as sort of my guide to all things Trek. So, again, uh, I, I remember Mark from that. I also I used to pick up uh, Starlog magazine and uh, TV TV Zone. Ah. TV Zone was what it was. Uh, he used to write for both of those. So I have no doubt that I have read his writing too around that time. So, yeah, influenced us, Mark, more than you'd know. Very prolific, and yes, has uh, definitely been an invaluable source of content for you know people like us who are really into genre stuff. Absolutely. But let's talk about what we were talking about with Mark. And it was mainly focused on Bond and on his book. And it, I didn't know that he actually had the opportunity to go and interview everyone on the set of uh, License to Kill. I think that's really cool. I uh, wish I had had that opportunity myself. No, that was one of the big takeaways for me was this from this interview was that when I read Nobody Does It Better, I assumed just a lot of these interviews were from just archival sources. Mm-hmm. It just seemed like unlikely, you know, each movie you would have all these various sources to go to. But it was so interesting hearing him talk about how he had interviewed, you know, Robert Davy, for example, during the press for License to Kill. And so he could go back on all these interviews from these movies. And it had never occurred to me that that was the source of this information. And... Even that, you know, the Woody Allen interview that he had covering Casino Royale 67, I never dreamed that that was new interviews he'd done Mm. versus some like 1970s archival interview. Yeah, I, I, I think even he is still blown away that he had some of those opportunities. Like speaking to Jane Seymour about Bond and also sneaking in a chat about Battlestar Galactica at the same time. That's uh, that's one for your sort of uh, you know bucket list, as it were. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of oral history books. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read a number of them. I'm reading the Saturday Night Live one actually right now at the time oh, we yeah. record this, which is very entertaining. Um, but I never had a really strong sense as to how they were done. Mm-hmm. And to hear him kind of take you through the process and how he, uh, and how him and his co-writer, um, Edward Gross, break the project down and how it's actually like just a, a lot of work. You know, he talked about how the process is very difficult and that they haven't really been able to, like, refine it down to an easier methodology over the number of books they've written. Just in its, like, core approach to doing these types of books, they're a lot of work. And so it was interesting to hear him kind of explain exactly how you ultimately produce an invaluable tome like Nobody Does It Better. And, yeah, it's it's a very different thing to what we do here on the show because uh, different in some ways and also very similar in others because for instance there's a lot of like structural work that goes into putting these books together they have to pick what quotes go where to create a sort of linear narrative through in the bond books uh sense the sort of time of all the films in a row basically through decades in a sense Uh, other books have done it in different ways but you know that that requires a lot of work whereas we do the interviews and then just apart from cam doing some editing on it we put them out like there's not much after work past the actual interview itself um but then uh, the other way around about it and one thing i really appreciate the what both 
Mark does with Edward and what we do as well is, you know, we're taking people's words and putting it out the spoken word. That's their word verbatim. And these oral history books are the same because it's not editorialized. It's not someone taking someone's story and sort of recontextualizing it to how they want it to come across. Those are Woody Allen's words. Those are Jane Seymour's words about Bond. You're hearing it from them as if you're talking to them. And I think that's a, a great way of getting an unfiltered look at what goes into creating some of our favorites by movies. Yeah, it's not just paraphrasing it mm -hmm. for like the anecdote. Yeah, exactly. And there are plenty of other Bond books out there and, and other genres, you know, pop culture books that do the same thing. Uh, yeah, and, and sort of filter it through and sort of through their own lens and try and tell the story that they want to tell. Whereas this is very much from the horse's mouth. Definitely. And that's one thing I kind of look for when it comes to Bond books, because there are a lot of them, is the ones that take a unique approach. Whether it's A.J. Chowdhury's like, very like technical breakdown as to the making of these movies. Like Every bit of information you'd ever want to know about the production element of Bond is covered in that book so well. Mm -hmm. Or something like this, which has a little more of a candid sort of insider you know, storytelling kind of vibe to it, mm -hmm. where it's like, as um, as Mark talked about, there's a Rashomon feeling to it, where the stories don't always line up, and it's very much playing with just human memory and the way we remember incidents that tie to these much bigger events. Yeah, and also, like, there's, um, there's interviews we've done in the past with people that have been in Bond or other things, or worked on Bond, I should say, and we've had some facts questioned to us, but ultimately it's their words. We're just giving you their message. We're, we're like, we're the courier in a sense. Mm. And so I, I wasn't there. You weren't there. So we can't challenge them during the interview. And the oral history is the same. It's just giving them a platform to tell their story and in a way that can sort of bring those stories together in sort of a, a, a simple narrative. Definitely. Yeah. And, it was just so interesting, too, how this interview walked a line between not just like analysis of the process of the creation of Nobody Does It Better, as well as his John Wick book and his Star Trek books, but also um, he's someone with a lot of experience in the industry. You know, he was a yeah. writer producer on the movie Free Enterprise back in the day, but someone who has a real sense as to how the industry operates. He's a TV showrunner. He recently worked on Pandora, which mm -hmm. ran a couple seasons. Um, and to me, it was just invaluable having him join us just for like kind of the gossipy fun chatter about where Bond, the franchise, could be going next. What is Eon up to? Is there anything to these Christopher Nolan rumors? And I love having guests like Mark on who have strong opinions and have a certain amount of backup for those opinions. Yeah, uh, that is, I was hoping you'd say that second part there, because anyone can jump on a microphone and say, this is why or why I do not think Christopher Nolan's going to be the next Bond director. This is why or I do not think that Aaron Taylor Johnson's going to be the next Bond, yada, yada, yada. That's what we do. But this is what we do. We're uneducated fools, but mm. we put that on the label. You know that when you step into the show, when you put your earpods in your ear, you know you're getting two idiots, but you find us endearing and that's okay. But luckily, we bring on the experts who know what they're talking about, and they can back it up. Mark has the receipts. He's been talking to people involved in Bond since 1989. He's been watching Bond since when he was basically alive. He knows the Bond universe, and he knows the industry in which it's created. He's worked. He still works in it. And so, you know, if there's anyone to turn to 
in this uh, in this time of need, in this void of all things Bond information, <laughs> Mark is your man because he can give you an educated guess, which is the best you're going to get out of the team at Eon currently. Yeah, and I mean, recently, because of Hollywood Strikes, you know, over on the debrief on the Patreon, we've talked a little bit about some of the gossipy Bond stories, but there's not a lot to really dive into. So it was great having Mark on to basically give listeners the best kind of Bond gossip talk you could get. Yeah, if, if he's the man to extrapolate it all for you. I'm glad we had the opportunity to do that. And I'm glad that uh, he kind of agrees with us. I think they need to focus on a younger generation and getting new fans in and making it a bit more fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know how you achieve that. I'm not a screenwriter. I nor don't fun. tend to be. Nor fun. Thank you, Cam. <laughs> right, exactly. An uneducated idiot who is no fun. I'm great at parties. Trust me. Born podcaster. Oh, oh, how the <laughs> listeners roll in. But yeah, it, it was an absolute thrill to have Mark on the show. He's already booked himself for his next visit. He's already earmarked the film he wants to come on and talk about. And I'm looking forward to having Mark back on the show. So once again, thank you to Mark. Again, check out the links in the show notes below for his wonderful podcast. A link to find the book, Nobody Does It Better. The complete uncensored unauthorized oral history of james bond all that will be in the show notes below but the next very important question goes to my very not boring co-host cam smith what do we have coming up next week well we are talking about a little bit of an obscure one we love doing these episodes and bringing them to your attention we're going to look at the 1942 propaganda war film spy ship which is available on youtube we will make those links known to all of you there's some really interesting real world parallels for this one in terms of events that were actually happening during world war ii Mm -hmm. as well as just some really fun pulpy adventure going on here so uh check it out and i think we're gonna have a really fun breakdown of this movie yeah it's one of those interesting ones that you know it the film isn't really out there it isn't really known which is kind of our specialty we like to find these films and bring them into the light as it were, as you know, spies like to do. And so that will we'll have that on YouTube basically for you to check out. Uh hopefully before the actual episode comes out. But um available at least by the time the episode comes out. So you can watch the film as well as listening to the episode. And it's interesting as well that we're going, you know, spy ship to yeah, the USS Enterprise is a spaceship to the spy ship. We're just trying to connect it, folks. Red alert, red alert, failing metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah yeah failing metaphor much as i'm failing this outro so uh, your mission folks should you choose to accept it is to join us next week as we take a look at 1942's spy ship and if you like what you heard on this interview please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you are listening be that apple Podcasts, spotify Podbean, Podchaser, anywhere you can leave us a review please do and if you don't already please follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week listeners you'll find me working hard on improving my star trek puns (laughs) 